The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. And for several weeks, we've been, we've been working our way down towards the last comments that I will make on the Gospel of Matthew. And we're in these last five verses, which are commonly known as the Great Commission. And the subject of these final messages is the service of the king. And here we find the king's most important commandment to his subjects. Uh, the king has one great desire uh, for this world, and that is to bring more people into his kingdom, those that will recognize him as their king and worship him in spirit and in truth. His purpose in coming into the world was to call sinners to repentance, to call them to turn from their sins and the rejection of him as their rightful king and turn to him as the one who is the Lord of all. Now, in the message today, that's, that's the part that I want to focus on. And that is this aspect of the closing verses that Jesus is Lord of all. Let's stand, if you would, please, as we read beginning in Matthew 28, verse number 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to do what this word says, to be witnesses to you in all of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The focus of today's message is verse number 18, which I think we could call the anchor of the Great Commission. This is the declaration of divine right. This is why that the commission must be obeyed. It's why that the Lord's Church cannot make any other business its primary business than what we read right here in these verses. Jesus said, all power is given unto me. Now, power in that verse does not refer to the strength of the Lord. Although the Lord is mighty, he's greater than all. Yet that's not what the verse is actually talking about. Here, the word power means authority. This is the Lord's absolute right of command. And it's not a statement that we see here that says, well, just now that he has begun to exercise his authority. No, that authority has belonged to him. And in verse number 10 when he told the women at the tomb to go and tell his disciples to meet him in Galilee, that was a command, and they obeyed him because they recognized that he was Lord. Now, that's where we started the message last week. We we began talking about how the disciples responded to that command to meet him in Galilee, and that's what we called the engagement. And the engagement was that the disciples were to meet Jesus in a particular time, in a particular place, They were to put that on their calendar and they would be at this certain spot at a certain time and there Jesus would give them this great commandment. He exercised his authority. 
by telling them what they must do. And they had seen his miracles. They knew that he rose from the dead. They saw all of that. And they were eager to see what came next. Why was Jesus asking them to meet him in Galilee? What kind of a message would he give them there? And they hoped, I'm sure, that it would be a promise of the restoration of Israel's kingdom. And you know from previous studies that the disciples were always interested in that. They were expecting that David's kingdom would begin. And they knew that Jesus would be the king of that kingdom. And they thought that he was ready to make it a present reality. And so they visualized themselves as being an integral part of that kingdom. They expected that they would have their position because they were right there on the ground floor. They were at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry and been there all along. And so they expected when the king goes into his kingdom, they'll receive their thrones, their positions, and they will rule in that kingdom. And you remember they argued about that. They were always pushing forward. They were envious of one another, trying to get the best spots that were in the kingdom. James and John were the most brash about that as they asked the Lord whether they could sit on the right hand and the left hand of his throne. Even when Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem to endure the horrible suffering of the cross, that's the thing that was on their minds. They, were, they wanted to know, where are we going to be in the kingdom? And they weren't even thinking that, that the cross was going to happen. Jesus told them this would happen, but they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about where they're going to be in the kingdom. And then we come to Acts chapter 1, when Jesus was ready to ascend into heaven and go back to the Father. That's the very thing that's still on their mind. And so they ask him, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And so I'm sure... When Jesus gave those orders, he had risen from the dead, and he said, meet me in Galilee. They thought, surely this must be the time that he's going to announce his kingdom. He will set himself up as the king, and he's going to give us that date of the restoration of the kingdom. And what they got, I think, was a very unexpected surprise, because he wasn't ready to begin the earthly kingdom. He wasn't there to announce the date of it, and still he hasn't announce that date. We don't know when it's going to be. And so this was not the time for them to rule. This was the time for these disciples to surrender themselves to the king as servants of the king, and they were to live as servants and die as servants and not to be rulers at this particular time. And they all did die. Right down to the very last of them, they died. They took their last breaths with the gospel of Jesus Christ on their lips. And from this point forward, from the time that Jesus gave them that commission, it wasn't easy for them. Right then, they began to live out those warnings that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 10. They lived that out, and hardship became the reality of their lives because of the gospel of Christ. Remember, Jesus required them to give up everything that they were, everything that they had, and to follow him until this commission was fulfilled. And then someday, someday those thrones would be theirs, and they will reign in a glorious kingdom upon the earth. But here's what we have to learn at the very beginning. This is actually what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that is the willingness to push all personal gain away from us, to get rid of all of that, to get it out of the picture, and to focus only on this one thing, and that is how are we going to glorify Jesus Christ with the work that he's given us to do. 
And by the way, when we think of Matthew chapter 10 and what happened to the apostles, reading that chapter and seeing what Jesus asked of them and what he asked of us makes Christianity a very hard sell. It's difficult to to talk to people about Christianity and give the real picture of what it's all about. It's an impossible sell to the world because the world is selfish. The world is looking for their, at their selves. They, they never want to give up anything. They want personal gain all of the time. And so what people have been sold today is a bill of goods about the Christian life. Preachers have tried to make the Christian life palatable. And so they change what Jesus said. And you never hear about pain and suffering and difficulties that will come because you are a Christian. Oh, they know that selling Christianity to an instant gratification crowd is too hard. And so they fake Christianity. They give fake promises. And nobody really knows what Jesus actually said. He said the reward is not now. You're not going to see the reward now. And so we will experience hardships in our lives. Just like the people that we just mentioned over in Middletown experiencing the fire, a church that's lost their whole building, their ability to worship one another. They're still a church, by the way. And uh, they're still God's people, by the way, so that's preserved. But there's hardships to go through. And the Christian life, is that's going to come into your lives sometime, and you have to recognize that. And that makes it very difficult to cause people or want people to come into Christianity to receive Christ if you start with that and tell people the hardships that are going to be there. And it never works. It never will work with the people of the world. And this is exactly why that a person must be regenerated in order to understand these things. The heart has to be changed. The mind has to be renewed before we're ever going to accept servanthood. It has to be renewed before we'll accept pain and suffering and hardship that can come by trusting Christ. And so the reward that you receive right now is Christ himself. It's the hope that he gives you in your heart. It's the promise of eternal life. And you'll never accept a surrendered life to Him, a life that pushes you down and exalts Him, you'll never accept that unless you have been regenerated by the Lord Jesus Christ, born again of the Spirit of God. So Jesus did command them to meet Him. He set up the engagement, and they came, and He was there just as He promised. And still He gives us that promise today. When we follow Him, when we go where He wants us to go, when we go to meet Him He promises that He will be there, and He'll give us all the strength that we need. Then secondly, we noted the enthrallment, that they recognized His right to command, and they went to that appointed place, and when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. Oh, they did recognize that He was God, and we know that. We, we talked about it last week. We know that they recognize Him as God because they were taught from the time that they were children that you do not bow, you do not worship anyone but the Lord God. And they wouldn't have bowed before Him if they didn't recognize He has this authority. He has risen from the dead. He is God. We acknowledge that. And this is always the response of those who truly know that Jesus is Lord And that is when you hear the gospel of Christ and God opens up your heart to to His Lordship, this is what you want to do. You want to come to Him. You want to worship Him. When you're saved, you know that the Holy Spirit has enlightened your heart. He's given you understanding. And now you want nothing but Christ. And you couldn't stop 
until you had Him. You know what it was like when the Holy Spirit came and convicted your heart that you weren't going to turn to the right hand or to the left hand. You're not going to follow anything else. You have your mind on Jesus, and that's what you want. And when the Holy Spirit convicts the heart, you can't turn away from Him. He calls you, He draws you, as we say, irresistibly to Him. He brings you to salvation. And you don't want anything but Jesus Christ. Now, folks, this is actually where the obedience of Christ commences. This is where it begins with us. We come to worship Him. We are obedient to Him because we recognize this very fact that Jesus is Lord. And so here are disciples who would never have accepted this commission. They never would have given in to this. They never would have become servants. They never would have renounced their flesh and pushed it down into the dust unless they had first worshipped Him. But we find that many Christians are resistant to worship and many are poor at worship. Oh, you did it when you first came to Christ. You, you wouldn't do anything else. But after that initial, initial recognition of Him and time goes by, it seems like worship to the Lord slacks off. That we really don't care so much about worship anymore. That people become bored with worship. Oh, and we experience that right here in Berean Baptist Church. When it's hard to get people to come to church, the members of the church to come on the day of worship, then you know something is wrong in the Christian life. We need to worship Jesus Christ. Now, I think that there are many who come to visit Berean and they wonder, where is the worship here? Where is the worship? And they have singing on their minds and they have hand clapping on their minds and they have jumping up and down on their minds and that's what they think worship is. And they say, where is that in Berean Baptist Church? We come here, we don't see those things, so these people must have missed worship. But have we missed worship? Uh, do we misunderstand what worship is? No, we know what worship is. Worship is when we come and we hear the Word of God and we hear Christ speak. And if we have to have more than that to enthrall us, to make us come to Him and want to worship Him, then there's something wrong with our understanding of what worship is. No, we come to hear the Word of God. This is the real worship that takes place here as we hear God's Word being taught and Christ speaking to us. That's our worship. Now, in our study of the resurrection, we noted how that God has given us one doctrine that gets its own day of recognition. There's only one doctrine in all the Word of God that gets a special day, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you can't get people to come to church on God's day to celebrate the resurrection and worship Him because of the resurrection, then you can count this, you can mark it down, that people, Christians, are going to be very, very poor at all of their acts of worship. The rest of the week is not going to be very much about worship, that's for sure, if people won't come on the one day that God has given for His worship. Now, if you wonder why, wonder why that the disciples were so steadfast and why they never gave up on this commission, why they stayed at this until it killed them, you can mark it down to this, that they saw Jesus and they worshipped and they recognized His authority and they fully accepted that authority. And if you won't worship Him, then you have never accepted His authority. Oh, these men had their times of weakness. We know that they did. The way is often hard. There are lapses of faith. We do experience that. And the ministry of the church is, is dedicated to 
encouraging, discouraged, despondent Christians. That's what we do very much when the preaching of the gospel or preaching from the pulpit. That's biblical ministry. That is biblical ministry, encouraging despondent Christians. Oh, you read the epistles and you see how many times that the aftermath of salvation is a full-out war with Satan. Satan is always trying to steal the confidence of God's people. And we see here that as soon as Christ met them, as soon as he had set the meeting with the disciples, that Satan was already there. He came also. And how do we know that? Because verse number 17 says they worship, but then it says some doubted. Satan was already there, and that's Satan who sows those, dis- dis- those seeds of discord and of doubt. Oh, he- Satan's never going to leave you alone, and that's why you need to yield to the authority of Christ. You must keep your eyes on him, because when you see him and you fail to focus on him, then very soon your heart is going to be turned away to other things. Your heart will be turned away to the things of the world, and you won't worship him, and you will have doubt in your minds. So some doubted, and your moment of doubt will come, but those doubts are defeated, and here we see that with the disciples, their confidence was restored, and that's because Satan is no match for the one who has all authority in heaven and in earth. And so we come to verse number 18 and the place of our focus today, and Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, or all authority is given unto me. Now, thirdly, what we're going to look at today is that authority, and we call this the elevation. This is the elevation of Christ. And you can stop right here in this one statement that we read in verse 18, and you have all that you'll ever need to know about the deity of Jesus Christ. Oh, most people don't really have too much trouble with his humanity, Oh, they'll accept that Jesus was a man, but it's deity. Accepting, believing that Jesus is God, that's the thing that gives them fits. When John wrote the epistle of 1 John, there were actually some people who doubted the humanity of Christ. At his time, there was a problem with that. There were people called docetists who were Gnostics, and they doubted the actual humanity of Christ, and they said that Christ didn't really have, or Jesus didn't have a real body. And that person who suffered on the cross, it wasn't a real suffering that he went through. But we don't really deal too much with that kind of an error today. We don't see docetism today. I don't think I've ever had to, I don't think I've ever met a docetist who, who said, well, I don't think that Jesus really had a human body. No, no, people accept that. They believe that he had a human body. He was a man that lived and he died and he did go to a cross. But the problem that they have is with the deity of Christ. And so many will accept, yes, he is, a, he is a good man, a very good man, a really good example for us. A few weeks ago, our president was at a church in Charleston, South Carolina. You probably saw it on the news where he sang Amazing Grace in this church at a funeral. And I wonder if our president recognized that John Newton, that great preacher who wrote that song, was singing or writing about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's the amazing grace. It's through Jesus Christ who is God. And I wonder if he recognized that this great preacher, John Newton, believed Jesus when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no one who comes to the Father but by me. Now, our president and other people love to give Jesus lip service, but then they encourage people to disobey him. 
Oh, he doesn't, he doesn't recognize what Jesus said in John 14, 6. Because our president and others say, oh, it's okay to pray to any other God. It's okay for you to pray to the God of your choice. Pray to Allah, pray to Buddha, pray to the Hindu gods, pray to the God of animists if you want, because they're all the same as Jesus Christ. But what does God say? Isaiah 44, 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying here in verse number 18. Beside me, there is no God. Now, many people like the president will accept that Jesus is a good example. But as soon as you up the ante and you admit that he is God, then you're bound to hear what he said. You are bound to believe what he said and you are bound to obey what he said. Jesus taught that he was God and he has absolute authority. He is exclusive about worship. This is what he said when he quoted Isaiah. Jesus said, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And isn't this what we find? Lip service to Jesus. They say that they believe Him, but their heart is far from Him. And so our President and our Supreme Court and our Congress says, Oh, it's okay for you to kill babies. It's alright for you to destroy marriage. It's alright for you to defy the authority of Jesus Christ. Oh, it's alright to disobey Him, to disobey the very one that they call a good example. The disciples could never do verse 17 if they didn't believe verse number 18. And when Jesus made this claim, he was either making the most self-deluded, maniacal claim that is possible, or it must be true just as he said it. It must be. Either he's crazy or he's God. And he must be the one that you rightfully worship. So he doesn't really give us any wiggle room in verse number 18. Do you see any there? Do you see any place to shift around here and find room for someone else? No, you must accept if this verse is true that he is God of heaven and earth. What does he say? All power, all authority in heaven and earth. And he's speaking of the entire universe and everything that's in it, everything that's outside of it. You cannot have trouble with Christ's deity if you believe this verse. Oh, here we have a universal declaration of one God, one supreme authority, one all in all, and His name is Jesus Christ. So you could never be a Jehovah's Witness and believe this verse. You could never be a Mormon and believe this, this verse. And you cannot be a Christian and not believe this verse. All authority in heaven and earth is given to Jesus Christ. Now, we look at that statement, and we accept it as true. I hope that you do, that you accept it. But what does that mean? Jesus says, all authority is given unto me. And I want you to note that word given. That word given is the battleground for his deity. Because we have to ask, how can he be supreme God if authority has been given to him? If he's God, doesn't he already have authority? 
Oh, it's a difficult question. But this explanation takes us into the most profound revelation of all the revelations of God and His nature, because here we find a Trinitarian statement. It's a statement of the plurality of the Godhead. And it must be a plurality, because we can't say that it means three gods, because all power and authority couldn't be shared among three gods. It can't be a statement there's only one person in the Godhead, because no one has the power to give all authority to anyone but God. God must exist in plurality. So we must be looking here at co-equality and co-existence, co-eternality. It must be God in three separate persons and yet one person. And this is actually a mystery that none of us can fathom. None of us can really get to the bottom of this because God is too high above our thinking. But we must accept this, that Jesus is God, that authority has been given to Him and it can't be given unless that plurality exists. But today's not my time to explore the doctrine of the Trinity. That's really not the purpose today. So I'll just refer you to some later reading. You can just pick up some verses like Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and read them, and there you see plurality. Or Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and there is also plurality. But what I'd like to concentrate here now is on the great transition or this great exchange that caused Jesus to say this, that all authority had been given to him, that he had been elevated, he was exalted. Now, obviously, the one who gave him this authority was God the Father. But how and when and what are the circumstances of this transition? Well, first, we need to look at the eternality of the covenant. And this takes us back before time It takes us back before God created the world. It takes us back to the triune God when there are no creatures, when there was no world on which to bestow His love and His grace. There are no subjects of the kingdom. There is no one that He can give commandments to and thus to give them a commission. All this takes us back to the original purpose. What did God have in His mind as He was ready to create this world? It takes us back to the Great Commission that I preached a couple of sermons ago. Oh, this is, this is the covenant made between God the Father and God the Son, that the Son would come into the world to give His life as a ransom for sin. And I'll not confuse you with the long theological terms, because what I've said here is very controversial as in respect to the timing of it, when the covenant was made. But suffice it to say that this is something that happened outside of time. Time did not exist. The world was not being ruled by time when these things took place. No, a covenant was made. And when the commission God gave the Father to the Son, when that commission had been fulfilled, that's when God enforced the covenant that was made between the two. And at that point, the whole world was given to Christ. Now, we see that there there was an attempt to circumvent it. You go back to... Satan's temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. And Satan tried to get around that original covenant. And he said to Jesus, I will give you the kingdoms of the world and you won't have to go to the cross. Don't worry about that. And his condition was, Satan's condition was, bow down and serve me. In other words, let me be God and you won't have to go through the sufferings of the cross and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And what Satan was trying to do was to drive a wedge between the Father and the Son. 
Oh, there are many explanations that are given how Satan could even make such an offer as that. But we'll leave it right here that Satan was self-deluded. He had no ability to make such an offer. He was not going to get Christ to give up his commission and deny the Father. And you'll notice that Jesus never stepped up to claim authority apart from the fulfillment of the commission that God had given him. And so he's always working according to that original covenant. And he always trusted the Father that if he did this, that if he stepped down from the authority that he had in heaven and he came to this earth, that he died as a man, that that authority would be fully restored to him by God raising him from the dead. And so that authority was never given. And that authority was never taken outside of the eternal covenant of redemption. And I want you to get that because what we're talking about right now is is that we're stepping into deep waters of the Word of God. And we're not speaking about little sermonettes here, little platitudes that they come out of the churches, they clap their hands and praise Jesus crowds. No, this this is getting down to the hard things of the Word of God and things that boggle the mind, that the mind can't really get get grasp of because this is too deep and too hard for us. And yet this is what took place in eternity. Now I want you to turn to Psalm 2, if you would. And this is where we see the same promise of the Son's authority being transferred, that authority of God being transferred to Him in Old Testament language. Now what Jesus has given us is New Testament language, But all that he did was to claim a promise that was made years and years and years before the time that he speaks Matthew 28, 18. In Psalm chapter 2, we're going to break in at verse number 6 and listen to this conversation. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little." Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Now look at this very peculiar language in verse 7. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my Son. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son, but it's God the Son who's relating the conversation. And the Father said to God the Son, This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give the world to you. I'm going to give you everybody and everything. And this is the transaction. This is the transition. In John 17, you can see Jesus praying for this very thing, that he would receive the inheritance that God promised. He prayed for the restoration of his glory as he was about to go to the cross. And so he prayed in John 17, 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so when was this time? When was that authority given to Christ? It was promised. And it's an eternal covenant. But when is the time for it to happen? Well, that's what we look at next. And that is the exchange of authority. Oh, there was a very definite time for it to happen. It was not at his birth. Even though he came into the world, his kingship was declared at that time. 
But that was not the time for the exchange. It's not in Matthew chapter 3 when you come to the baptism of Jesus. His baptism was a sign that it would happen, but that was not the time for the exchange. It wasn't when he did his miracles. That's not the time. That was to show that he came from God. It wasn't even in his death. It couldn't be his death because that was abandonment by the Father. That's when Jesus took sin upon him and the Father turned his back on him. So when was it? When is the exchange? Well, the Scriptures actually give us the answer in Romans 1 verse 4 where it says, And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so his death was the last thing that had to be accomplished before this exchange could happen. It had to, he had to finish the work that God gave him to do. But that authority, he finished that work, but that authority cannot be transferred to a dead man. And so God raised him from the dead. And then he claimed that authority that God promised and God gave it. Well, do you see how much trust that Jesus had in the Father? you see the closeness there was, the absolute assurance of the Father's promise? Oh, Jesus went to the cross and he died and he was utterly convinced that he would not be left in the grave and his body would not see corruption. And so the Scriptures tell us what happened when he was willing to do this. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is the elevation. That is the exaltation, the transfer of authority. And here is a glorious expression of the promise that God would not give it until Jesus had earned it. In the transfiguration, Peter writes about the transfiguration, Second Peter 1. He said, For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And that verse tells us that Jesus was always going to be working according to this commission. That everything that he did was for the pleasure of the Father. Everything that he did pleased God because he did everything that God expected him to do. And so when Jesus prayed to the Father, he could say to him, I know, Father, that you hear me always. And it's because the Father is always pleased with the Son. Why? Because... He was always engaged in working towards this thrilling exaltation, the elevation that God had promised him. And so when Jesus went to the cross, he went there willingly, and he became redemption for sin, and he held up his end of the bargain, and the Father was pleased to reward him by raising him from the dead and then giving all authority to him. Now, I want you to notice again, thirdly, the extent of authority. The extent of his authority is all-encompassing. If Jesus had said, I have all authority on earth, that would be very impressive. I mean, since the earliest of times, there have been men that wanted to have rule over the entire earth. You go back to 
nearly the beginning of the Bible to Genesis chapter 11. And there you find Nimrod who had that in his mind. And he began to build a city called Babel, which became Babylon. And Babylon from that time forward became the symbol of man's desire to usurp the authority of God. And so we see Babylon always rising up and trying to conquer the world. Nebuchadnezzar tried to do it. It's part of his vain attempt to be God. This is what Daniel says. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace. That's Nebuchadnezzar walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar wanted to rule the world. Alexander the Great tried to do it. The Roman Caesars tried to do it. Napoleon tried to do it. Hitler tried to do it. And if any of them had been able to do it and hold on to it, we would all say, how impressive that is. If Jesus said, all power on earth is given to me, we could be his subjects, couldn't we? We would have to be subjects of the king. But Jesus said something far more impressive far more out of the reach of a mortal man. He said, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. One author wrote, he swept the compass with a reach far wider, more spacious and stupendous, not only on earth, but in heaven is authority given to him. And now we truly have to say how impressive. Angels are subject to him. I can't even imagine what it would be like to have the power or have power over one angel, much less so many angels that you can't even count them. And this also means that he has power over the angel that we, the most powerful one that we have to ever have to deal with. He is also under the authority of Christ. And that angel is who? That is Lucifer, the great adversary, Satan. He's under the authority of Jesus Christ. So who needs to fear him? He's under the authority of the great king. But don't you sometimes feel that Satan has the upper hand? Isn't that where doubts arise? Isn't that where fear comes from our heart? Isn't it Satan's influences that keep us from speaking the word of Jesus Christ, witnessing the commission? I don't think the disciples had time to think all of that through. I don't think they see all of that right here as they're meeting in the Galilee engagement. Oh, it took some time. It took some time for them to figure all this out. They were going to face the very worst that Satan can do. But what Satan could not do is take their souls away from them. And so we have to ask, where did the courage come from? How did these guys get turned around? Where does their courage come from to do what Jesus said? Because we're talking about the very same men who feared. The men who fled the cross when Jesus was ready to die. The men who were in despair because he was in that tomb. They had no courage to do what Jesus said. So how did they get it? They got it by believing him. By hearing this statement and accepting it. That all authority in heaven and earth begins or is in him. That's where you have to go. If you're afraid, if you don't have the courage to do it, if you lack the courage to go out for him, remember, he's the one who has all authority. Hebrews 13 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Paul had an interesting way of 
stating the extent of his authority. Colossians 1.17, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, consist doesn't just mean that he made all things. It means he sustains it. It means he rules it. It's a declaration of his authority. You know, it's really a shame that the end of Matthew is preached as verses 19 and 20. Most of the time what we do is pick this up at verse number 19, and we read this, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And so we preach, go, 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 and baptize, and teach, and observe, as it says in verse number 20. And the word that gets lost in the reading here is the word therefore. And we never ask the question, what is that therefore, therefore? Why is that there? Go ye therefore. Why? Because all authority is given to Christ. Go ye therefore. Don't be afraid because he has all authority. You don't have to wonder how you're going to do it because he has all authority. I don't think that they understood that at that moment. They had a commission to go and teach all nations and there are only 11 of them. 11 men and Jesus said, go teach all nations. And even if you add... 500 or more who might have been there, how are they going to accomplish that? How are they going to do that with such a small number? They didn't understand the kingdom. They didn't understand, surely didn't understand a spiritual kingdom. I will talk more about it, but in verse 20, Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, to the even, even to the end of the world. But that text doesn't really tell the whole story of all the things that he said previously. Things that he said before didn't register with them. Oh, there's all that teaching that he gave about the Holy Spirit, the one who's the paraclete, the one who will come alongside them to help them. He said that he was leaving and he was going to a place where they couldn't go. And yet he said, you're going to have all that you need. I'm going to be here because I'll be here in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the understanding of that statement didn't come later until he ascended from the Mount of Olives there in Jerusalem. And there's where we find the whole story of how it would happen Because in the commission given there, it says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of heaven. And when the Holy Spirit came, the church exploded with growth, and they received the help that they needed, and the disciples caught on to how the gospel would reach all nations. And so here... In verse 18, you see the strength of verses 19 and 20. The strength of the entire passage is verse 18. All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Now we notice, though, something about those who leave out verse 18, and they start preaching in verse 19. They glide over the therefore, and they apparently forget where the power of the gospel resides. It's as if when they go out, they're on their own. And so they do all sorts of things to build, build the church without Christ. You can go to the Christian bookstore and you can find dozens of books on how to grow the church. Oh, I get offers all the time about the latest, greatest way to grow the church. And there are all kinds of man-made methods to, to tackle every obstacle that you could ever imagine And yet in 2,000 years of church history, with all the books that have ever been written, there is nothing that has ever bested the original strategy. All power, all authority belongs to Christ. 
And so I hardly think that he would have left us a commission to figure out how will we make it successful. Can you imagine that in the eternal covenant that God spoke to the Son and he said, you know, after all this trouble that we're going to go through, I sure do hope that somebody believes this. Our, our, our glory is dependent upon this, so we sure do hope somebody believes it in the end. You know, someone said to me the other day how much stress had been relieved and how much more willing they were to speak about Christ, how much pressure had been relieved when they finally got it into their heads that God is the sovereign and He's the one who has all authority here. We just do this. We just do what He says. We leave all the strategies. We leave the slick techniques. We leave the salesmanship at home and just depend upon Him. Who is it that's going to get the decision? Not me. I'll never convince anybody to believe. Christ, the Holy Spirit, God works in them to bring them to Him. That's all that I need to know. Just give the message, let Him take over and bring people to Him. Now, one last point that I'm going to let you go. We need to hurry here. And that is the evasion of authority. Some of us really do have authority issues. You know, when I was growing up, I, I rarely asked my dad why he asked me to do something. Rarely did I ever wait for him to tell me to do something a second time because I recognized he had authority. In our home, he had the authority. He had authority over me. And I never thought about it this way. You know, I really do need to do this because my dad is the king of this neighborhood. And so I better do what my dad says. And yet, here we have Jesus Christ, who is declared to have all authority by the resurrection from the dead. He has all authority over heaven and earth. And we don't have to hear this command once. We hear it twice. We hear it three times. We hear it four times. We hear it ad infinitum. And still we sit here. We have authority issues. We don't obey the Lord. Oh, Christ is exalted to be the Lord. I preach that and I believe it. But I'm not going to tell you what many people do, what many preachers tell you. I'm not going to produce a diagram for you that shows your heart has an empty throne on it. And then the preacher says, what you need to do is you need to put Jesus on the throne. You need to make Jesus the Lord. He does not need you to make Him Lord. And you can't make Him Lord anyway. And His throne has never been empty. You're not going to pick Him up and sit Him on His throne because He's on that throne forever and forever. You just have a problem submitting to the authority of the one who's on that throne. Don't think about making Jesus Lord of your life. He's already the Lord of his li your life. You have to submit to that. What you do has no bearing on his position. God has already made him Lord. We see it right here in the Scriptures. He said, all power and authority is given to me. It's all mine. Heaven and earth is mine. God has already made him Lord. He's already exalted as Lord. And so that tells us that Jesus outranks everything. He outranks everybody. Men and principalities and powers are all subject to Him. They're all under His control. And so we must obey Him because that's God's purpose. It's His purpose for Him to be glorified. And what we must stop doing is evading His authority. Stop evading God's authority, Christ's authority. And do what God has said. Get into the service of the King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the word that we've read today. I pray, Lord, that deep in our hearts that we would not 
evade the authority of Jesus Christ. But we would listen, we would hear, we would do as the disciples did, that we would obey, that we would come and we would see you and then we would begin the work of service that you have required us to do. Lord, we pray for your people. We pray for our church. We just ask you, Lord, that our people would return to worship, to come and hear the Word of God being preached, and then take that Word out and give it to others and let them know who rules and reigns in this earth. Lord, help us to speak to people the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us today as your church to do this, to be in the service of the King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the book of Mark, Mark 16, it, it preached the gospel. And so we have to know, what is that gospel? What does that actually contain? What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? And unfortunately, there are so many people that have missed what the terms of the gospel itself are. What is the gospel of Christ? How do you recognize that a person has actually believed the gospel? Is that something I just say? Is it something I admit with my mouth? Is there some proof that the gospel has actually touched me and affected me and made me different? And so if you're a person who says, well, I have believed the gospel of Christ, but you sit and you don't look like it, you don't act like it, you have trouble with the world, you live like, like you don't know what to do about what's right and what's wrong, which I'm going to talk about some tonight, but you can't figure those kinds of things out, then you have to wonder, have I really believed the gospel? Because the gospel is going to make a change in you. You can't be the same person and sit in the pew just like you did before. You've got to be different. And if you're not different, then you haven't accepted the authority of Jesus Christ. The gospel must be believed in its fullness. It does something to people. It changes people. So we need to look at that. Have you truly believed the gospel of Jesus Christ? A lot of people say so, but have they? Jesus addressed that in Matthew chapter 7. Many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, you know, on that day you'll talk about all the wonderful works you did and how, yeah, I went to church, I did this, I did that. But there's not really a change in your life. Going through the motions rather than really knowing Christ in the heart. So we've got to look at all of that. It's all here in the passage. This is what we need to do today. Surrender to the authority of Jesus Christ. Get that out of the way first. Recognize it. Recognize who He is and the right that He has to command you to do what He says. And if you recognize that authority, you can't, you can't be what you were yesterday before you recognized it. Does that make sense to everybody? Of course it does. If you recognize the authority, you're going to be different from what you were yesterday. Have you truly believed? That's something we've got to get nailed down. The Word of God says to examine yourselves, whether you are actually in the faith. That's what God's people have to do. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.